The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. UFOs, aliens, are they real? I think so. Have we made contact with them? I don't know. I'm going to go with an optimistic maybe. Maybe even a highly likely on that one. Aliens fascinate me in an entirely different way than anything else on the paranormal or cryptozoological spectrum. I have a much easier time believing in aliens than in Sasquatch, for example, because we've been to virtually every place on Earth now, many times over. Google Earth has photographed and is re-photographing every inch of the terrain of our planet from satellites. Unless, of course, you're a flat Earth believer and you think that Google just, you know, spends a lot of time photoshopping pictures to, to cover up all that nasty conspiracy stuff. But seriously, if Sasquatch is real, you know, we haven't found him yet, at the very least. And, you, and you'd think we would have. You'd think we'd have more than some old fuzzy film by now. But space, we really, truly do not know what's out there. No one does. And if it's infinite in size, like some people much more intelligent than myself speculate, or, or at least bigger than we can currently wrap our minds around, I think the odds are good that there is some kind of life out there in the universe other than our own. I mean, apparently there are at least a septillion planets, which I didn't even know was a number until doing this episode. A septillion. That's 10 to the 24th power. A one followed by 24 zeros. In layman's terms, it's a preposterous shit ton of planets. Millions of shit tons, to be more precise. Another article, article I read said that astronomers estimate that there are 100 billion Earth-like habitable planets in the Milky Way galaxy alone and 50 sextillion habitable planets in the universe. Obviously, these numbers are rough estimates because we can't fly around and properly count them all. You know, but the point is, a lot of possibilities for life. I think it's pretty arrogant to assume ours is the only uh, planet inhabited by sentient beings. I also think it's arrogant to assume that we would be the most technologically advanced out of all the species in the universe. You know, just because we can't bounce around other planets yet, Elon Musk is working on that shit, uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, other planets don't have creatures that can do that already. 
or have been able to do that for a long time. However, just because I think odds are there is a lot of other life out there in the universe, I also don't necessarily believe they've contacted us. You know, maybe they do know about us. Maybe they don't give a shit. Maybe they've spied on us from afar and just thought, nah, that's a, they seem a little paranoid, a little hostile. Let's, let's let them evolve a little bit more. Then we'll come visit, try and be friends. Or maybe, you know, they don't, they don't know about us. Maybe they just don't know yet. We don't know. All I know for sure is that they haven't contacted me personally. I don't think. I mean, shit, I mean, maybe they have and they erased my memory. I don't know. I don't know. I barely begun this episode. My head's already in a weird spot. Perfect for this episode. It's time to go interstellar. Time to go extraterrestrial. Little Area 51, Roswell. Strap in for a giant episode today. A brief history of UFO sightings, tales of abduction, even a little anal probing explanation on this all-alien, big-time bonus edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hello, Time Suckers. Hello to all of you BDMs who have joined the show. You know who you are, and I thank you for coming along with us. Uh, Getting to some bonus suckage this week, a little extra suck to take you over into the weekend. Mm-hmm. Yep, getting some, uh, getting some serious suck on right now. For those of you who don't know, uh, this episode is a thank you to all those for, uh, for the show reaching 200 reviews on iTunes. Uh, actually, uh, got about 225 uh, right now, I think, which is, uh, I'm blown away by those of you who, who have been doing this, doing, doing a lot of them. Got about 30 in the past week, I think, somewhere around 30, 40. So apparently I need to start working on the next Friday bonus episode now. Uh, those reviews help, you know, they do. Uh, so do you help, uh, you know, you tell others about the show. That helps push the show into the top 200 most downloaded comedy podcasts on iTunes. We just cracked the top 50. I'm so thankful. That just brings more awareness to the show. The more people listen, the closer I get to exploring, you know, some type of sponsorship. I'll find the right, you know, right one. It's not going to be fucking Walmart. I'll tell you that. Uh, but then I can buy some equipment, you know, some new stuff, retool the website, maybe even get to a place where I can hire some help, crank out more, better episodes. And you... Make all of that possible, and I thank you. And right now, it's just fun to dream about where this could lead. I, I have big dreams, man, to create a fun, safe little world for the curious, for us to all kind of, you know, uh, log in and gather and share ideas, and, uh, and I think we're going to get there. But this week isn't about my dreams. It's about the dream of contact with another world. Aliens. Thanks to Brandon Hotman and Josh DeCruz hitting me up on Twitter, at D underscore Cummins. Thanks to Carol on the timesuckpodcast.com message board. And uh, Thomas Royal emailing me at admin at timesuckpodcast.com. My cousin Matt in Wyoming sending me some alien info. And I'm sure several others I am forgetting at the moment. Uh, I hope this episode shapes up into something that you were, you were hoping for. So uh, let's, start, let's, let's start back at the beginning. You know, wh- when did humans start talking about aliens? Well, research on this uh, is, is tricky because when you start Googling shit about aliens, uh, you end up in a lot of nonsensical websites. So many like educatinghumanity.com. That one sounded like legit at first to me. And then I started researching their claims, such as 45,000-year-old rock carvings about UFOs in China. And that info, uh, uh, when I try to double-check it, which I usually do on this kind of stuff, um, if not triple-check it, uh, it only shows up on other lunatics' websites. Uh, Websites like crystallinks.com, undoubtedly ran by somebody who owns a lot of tie-dye t-shirts and reeks of patchouli. Honestly, if, if the word, word crystal is, is in your website, you've clearly pushed the eject button and jumped off the intellectual mothership a long time ago. You are firmly entrenched in the strange and dangerous world of pseudoscience. 
Uh, the most legitimate source I could find for the history of UFOs and extraterrestrial sightings was Time Magazine. All right, you know, I've heard of them. Familiar. Seem fairly legit. I don't think you're going to do much better than Time when it comes to this particular subject. And according to Time, uh, the earliest UFO sightings uh, in recorded history come from uh, 4th century China, when some Chinese texts claimed that a moon boat hovered over China every 12 years. Sounds totally legit. The old uh, 12-year moon boat situation. Uh, other enthusiasts cite the biblical book of Ezekiel, in which a curious vessel dropped from the sky landed in Chaldea. Chapter 1 of the book of Ezekiel recounts a vision in which Ezekiel sees, quote, an immense cloud, end quote, that contains fire and emits lightning and brilliant light. It continues, quote, the center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures, end quote. These creatures are described as winged and humanoid. Uh, they sped back and forth and like, like flashes of lightning, you know, fire moved back and forth around the creatures. This is all like modern-day Kuwait. Huh, winged and humanoid. Sounds remarkably like an angel. Also sounds like whoever uh, made that sighting uh, maybe stumbled onto some opium poppy fielder or some, some serious hashish or something. <laughs> sounds like a good high. Uh, a wave of sightings occurred near Rome in the winter of 218 B.C. during the Second Punic War. Quote, a spectacle of ships gleamed in the sky. And again in Germany in 1561 when there was a mass sighting of bright, unexplained light seen in the skies above Nuremberg. And that's about as good as it gets. There's no story of a ship landing, no story of creatures walking out trying to communicate with us, no tale of Caesar sharing some wine with some creature from another world, nothing like that. However, uh, some believe that if you go back far enough, uh, we did make contact and have even worked with aliens. And, and I'm not even talking about the Lizard Illuminati right now. That is, that's another group of uh, people who also believe that there was an early contact with space lizards. Fucking love saying space lizard. Uh, no, I'm talking about the ancient astronaut theory, which you probably most of you have heard of. Uh, there's a show called Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. Uh, it's one of those places I get sucked into just because it's, uh, it's so ridiculous. And there's this dude on there, this uh, Giorgio A. Uh, Suclos. He, he's the fucking guy with the crazy hair. You know him. He's like he, on most. He's the most popular alien meme. You know, he has he, he, his eyes get real big, and he just he looks yeah he looks exactly like the kind of person you would think is way into UFOs. Like uh, like the old, in the old X Files, you know, there was the lone gunman. If you ever watched that show, there was <laughs> those three dudes who Mulder would kind of talk to, and even for Mulder, you know, who was into UFOs, even those guys were a little like farther off the path than he was. He he would be. Like the guy, the lone gunman talked to when they needed some extra alien stuff. Like where even they would be like, eh, he's a little fucking out there, but you know, we'll see what Giorgio has to say. Uh, and his hair, his hair just keeps getting bigger, bigger and crazier. He gets more hairspray. I feel, I feel like based on hair alone, he could be a member of Trump's cabinet. Uh, yeah, king, the king of alien memes. Anyway, Giorgio and the other astronaut theory proponents, they believe that intelligent extraterrestrial beings visited Earth and made contact with us humans back in antiquity. And, and actually influence the development of human civilization and even religion. Basically, these a ancient aliens are kind of like the mother culture that all various human cultures have developed from. You know, the, the Q document, the source code. And early miracles and instances of God and divine beings were actually not divine, uh, according to this theory. They were aliens uh, who early humans viewed as gods. And, and to prove this theory, ancient astronaut believers point to ancient civilizations achieving things that they don't think were possible without outside help, like the pyramids. How did ancient people stack, you know, 2,300,000 limestone and granite blocks weighing about two and a half tons each into the Great Pyramid of Giza way back in 2580 B.C., over 4,500 years ago? I mean, that does boggle the mind. Well, you do a little digging, 
might come across the blog of an Egyptologist, Margaret Maitland. Uh, she's the senior curator of Egypt and the ancient Mediterranean at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. And at eloquentpeasant.com, uh, her website, she says that, quote, they had a certain expertise, and she's referring to the Egyptians here, uh, they had a certain expertise in stone working that we lack today. By the time of the pyramids, a core of craftsmen had been developing their quarrying and building skills since the early dynastic period. We have evidence to support the Egyptians' responsibility for all the construction stages of the pyramids. And then she points to old, smaller, less sophisticated pyramids, pyramids before Giza, you know, before the Great Pyramid, uh, some of which were abandoned kind of halfway through construction because they just kind of they fucked them up. They, they weren't going the right way. I mean, basically, she believes, you know, they were learning from trial and error, you know, like any craftsman have to do when they're forming, forming a new craft. So she points to local limestone quarries for material and a massive slave labor force to dig all this shit up and quarry it with the ancient tools that they totally could have done. And, and, you know, she methodically breaks down how it was very possible for the pyramids to be built with ancient Egyptian technology. But the fucking ancient astronauts, they don't, they don't want to hear that. They ain't hearing that shit. Nope. They, uh, they like to point to the hieroglyphics, uh, speaking of aliens, that look like uh, other ancient petroglyphs in Australia and in the Americas, uh, Sumerian tablets, art that seems to depict non-human humanoid figures. Uh, and they, th they think that this, you know, these people are all seeing the same aliens as opposed to just being, you know, shitty drawers with rudimentary art skills. Uh, they like to point to the, the impressive ancient stonework of Stonehenge, the Moai, those big stone heads of Eastern Island, uh, the ancient Nazca lines of Peru. Uh, you've probably seen those. those are, that's like the hundreds of these huge ground drawings etched into the high desert of southern Peru. I mean, I mean they are impressive. There's figures up to 1,200 feet long of animals and humanoids that can only properly be seen from the sky. Like, you know, how do they figure out how to do that back in 500 B.C. when you'd have to hike over to the nearby foothills, you know, to even see... Uh, a rough glimpse of kind of what you've drawn. Well, here's the deal. I don't know. Here, here's what I feel about the ancient astronaut theory. Hear me out on this. Uh, if people from another planet or solar system or even galaxy flew to Earth a couple thousand years ago and helped us build stuff, why was it just stone fucking monuments and stuff, stuff of that ilk? Seriously, think about, think about that. Let me get this straight. Some incredibly advanced civilization with spaceships that allow them to travel between worlds, gets here, and they're like, all right, everybody, let's go do some cool shit with those rocks. <laughs> That's what we're into. If you haven't heard, now you heard. Aliens love rocks. Man, fuck, I love rocks. What? No. Why couldn't they have helped ancient people out with some electricity or running water, or, you know, maybe some laser guns or at least a toaster oven? No one is flying across the galaxy to help people draw a giant goddamn cat on some plateau in Peru. That, that is idiotic. How, how is that helping? What is the point of that? You want to help? How about giving them some fucking antibiotics? Or at least point them in the direction of making some antibacterial soap so they stop dying as much. You're not, you're not flying to Earth in a spaceship, you know, made up of precisely cut limestone blocks. You know? You're not flying in a spaceship of a, of a stone pyramid or of a cat drawing. No, you have an engine. You have extremely advanced technology. Share some of that. But no, 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 they, they, man, they just came for a little rock work, you know? Got a, got a big old space boner to go carve some of, those, some of those stone heads on Eastern Island. Let us wait a few thousand years to even invent a biplane as you zip off in your fucking spacecraft. That's bullshit. Get out of here, Giorgio. Spend less time on buying hairspray and more time working on a theory that's a little more plausible. All that being said, I do love Ancient Aliens, and uh, I find it very entertaining. And if, uh, you know, you're a producer of that show or a History Channel exec and you happen to be listening, uh, uh, please find my agent. I would love to come on your show and talk about your stuff. 
like that'll ever happen now. Okay, so now let, let's get into the into the modern UFO sightings. Let's get into the the flying saucer. Find out where that term even come from. Okay, so, this, so there's these old ancient aliens. There's blah blah blah. All these fucking nonsensical things. But let let let's get to the head uh, to, to you know 20th century, 1947. This is this is the first like modern American kind of uh, uh, UFO sighting that, that led to like Roswell and Area 51 and all that kind of stuff. The first you know of of the flying saucer spaceship kind of situation. So 1947, amateur pilot uh, Kenneth Arnold claimed he saw nine crescent-shaped objects in the sky while flying near Mount Rainier in Washington in the first widely publicized American UFO sighting. Now, this Arnold uh, evoked images of saucers skipping on water to describe how they flew through the air. And that was his quote, quote, saucers skipping on water, end quote. But a local newspaper misquoted him, and the term flying saucer was born. How lame is that, man? This came from a misquote. I was hoping for a much cooler explanation. Uh, and, and how funny is it that after this misquote, people started seeing actual saucers? The power of suggestion, man. I should do a time suck on that psychological phenomenon. Well, Kenneth claimed to see a group of, of, of nine high-speed objects traveling at a speed of several thousand miles per hour. Uh, the U.S. Air Force investigated, officially listed what he described as a mirage. But Arnold stuck to his story, and, and he ended up kind of becoming a minor celebrity in paranormal circles until his death in 1984 at age 68. Well, after Arnold's sightings hits the papers, numerous other similar sightings began being reported all over the country in 1947. Again, funny how that works, right? So mass hysteria. Suddenly UFOs are being spotted by a Kansas City carpenter. He saw nine discs. A pilot in Oklahoma City. He sees nine discs. UFOs, man, they love flying in packs of nine almost as much as they love playing with rocks. Those are the two things I know about UFOs now. They like number nine, and they like rocks. Uh, well, that same year, 1947, a rancher stumbled upon a 200-yard-long swath of rubber strips, tinfoil, wood sticks, and scotch tape in Roswell, New Mexico, and, and decides to haul the wreckage to a nearby Army airfield where an excited officer issues a press release claiming a flying disc had been recovered. Roswell, baby, the legend is born. We're going to go deep on that sighting in just a little bit. For now, let's move on to some others. Archie uh, Eden of Wenatchee, Washington, he reports seeing a disc not only flying across the Washington night sky in 1947, but exploding once it reached about 200 feet uh, off the ground in a blinding light. I like how Archie upped the ante on that story, man. Maybe he figured seeing another disc wasn't enough to get him in the paper, so he had a little explosion to that story. And you know Archie talked about that for the rest of his life in Wenatchee, just to anyone who would listen to him. He's probably, he's probably a fixture at some local Wenatchee watering hole, some little hole-in-the-wall bar. You know, a new guy comes in, locals are like, hey, uh, why don't you... Uh, why don't you go over and ask Archie about his exploding UFO? And then I'll look across the bar at some wild-eyed old man drinking alone, hunched over his cheap pilsner. You know, <laughs> I saw what I saw, goddammit. Great white blinding light. Oh, Archie, you and your stories. And there were numerous other reports flowing into local papers around the country. UFOs and flying saucers, they're now a thing. If they would have had social media back then, UFOs would have been trending like a motherfucker. Well, the government steps in because of all this. All these sightings, all this public clamor and uproar gets the attention of the U.S. government, and they form Project Sign in December of 1948, which was the first U.S. government study of UFOs carried out by the U.S. Air Force. It was the first study overall, but I want to clarify how I said that. It was the first study, and it was carried out by the Air Force, at least officially. It was officially the first study. I was going to add that, a little, little caveat for you conspiracy theorists out there. You know, I was going to add the term officially that we know of. Uh, apparently, this project was uh, also monitored by the CAA, CIA. I think I said CAA. That'd be hilarious. Apparently, creative artists, the, the, the agency. 
was, was monitoring this. They wanted to know if they could, uh, you know, get some fucking uh, endorsements for some clients that were uh, paranormal enthusiasts. No, the CIA monitors this. And, and at first, the, the, the Air Force, CIA, and even White House, uh, they're doing this because they're, they're actually afraid. You know, they were scared that the Russians had come up. Remember, the, the, the Cold War is about to, about to get moving after World War II. They're worried about Stalin. What the fuck is he up to over there? You know, they're thinking that the Russians come up with some new scary weapon, and pretty soon we'd all be communists eating borscht and stale bread, working in dirty communist factories. Well, after a little digging, uh, the Air Force soon concluded that the UFOs were real but easily explained. Not extraordinary. The Air Force report found that almost all of the sightings stem from uh, one or more of three causes. I, I think these could apply today. Uh, one, mass hysteria and hallucination. Two, hoax. Three, misinterpretation of known objects. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Nevertheless, the report recommended uh, continued military intelligence control over the investigation of all sightings did not rule out the possibility of extraterrestrial phenomena. Well, uh, Project Sign is terminated by the end of January 1949, but then Project Grudge is immediately launched in February 1949. Uh, and for this reason, basically some of science personnel, including Director Robert Snyder, favored the extraterrestrial hypothesis as the best explanation for UFO reports. I kind of left that window open. Of course he did. Man, a, a, a new life form, that's way sexier than just some dude being full of shit. Then fucking, uh, what's his name in, in Wenatchee? Archie. <laughs> that's, that's way better, you know? Uh, but you know, a lot of people in the government were, were not big on that. And, uh, and he was, and so he was, you know, he was taken off of that operation and it was terminated. So then Project Grudge is started and ran by Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who favored a less exciting, you know, more scientific approach to evaluating these phenomena. He tried to alleviate public anxiety over UFOs via this public relations campaign designed to persuade the public that UFOs constituted nothing unusual or extraordinary. UFO sightings, you know, sightings were explained as balloons, conventional aircraft, planets, meteors, optical illusions, solar reflections, large hailstones, etc., etc., etc. Grudge officials uh, found no evidence in UFO sightings of advanced foreign weapons design or development and concluded that UFOs did not threaten U.S. security. They recommended that the project be reduced in scope because the very existence of Air Force official interests encouraged people to believe in UFOs. Totally agree with that. And it contributed to this war hysteria atmosphere. And so, uh, you know, on December 27th, 1949, that project is also shut down. And then uh, there was no official, at least that we know of, UFO investigation for a couple years. But then a new project gets launched in 1952. The Cold War, Cold, Cold War, Cold War is now in full effect. Uh, sightings are still being reported nationwide. And globally, uh, President Truman is nervous that those fucking Ruskies might be behind these sightings. You know, Stalin and, and his evil communist trickery, making some kind of high-speed flying death machines that run on potato vodka and cold-hearted hatred of freedom. Oh, Stalin, what kind of deal have you made with those Martians? And so uh, the big UFO, we are not fucking around anymore project, Project Blue Book, is launched. I was really hoping for a cooler name, by the way, for that. Uh, after Project Sign and then Project Grudge. Like, Sign's kind of like, eh, but then Project Grudge, that, that you know, like that ups the ante. And then I was hoping for this, this one to be like, you know, Project Victory or Project Death. Maybe uh, Project Do Not Fuck With America, you communist motherfuckers. That would have been good. That would have been a strong project name, but probably too aggressive. Uh, project Blue Book is uh, supposedly just named after the color of questionnaire booklets given to those who claim they saw UFO. <laughs> All right. It's practical. So the aim of Project Blue Book now is to, one, determine if UFOs uh, are a threat to national security, and two, 
scientifically analyzed UFO-related data. All right. So now the CIA, which had monitored both Project Sign and Project Grudge before Project Blue Book, uh, is again brought in, this time in a somewhat more formal capacity, and, and they formed the Robertson Panel in 1953. Now, the Robertson Panel, headed by mathematician and physicist Howard Robertson, who was a mathematical physics professor at the California Institute of Technology and Princeton, and frequent White House and military advisor regarding advanced weapon systems, basically a dude who understood advanced technology really, really gooder and shit than me do. Well, Robertson and the rest of uh, his team of literal geniuses oversaw the findings of Project Blue Book just to make sure the Air Force didn't miss something. And according to the panel, the Air Force didn't miss anything. On December 17th, uh, 1969, the project is shut down, concluding no UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of threat to our national security. There was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as, quote, unidentified, represented technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge. There was no evidence indicating that sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. That's it. Case closed, right? Eh? Well, not so fast. Check this shit out. I dug deep to find this. Christmas morning, 1969, the attacks and disappearances begin. 235 people go missing overnight from Easter Island. The entire fishing village of Rui Rui. 70 people are found dead in Micronesia. Can you fucking believe it? All the blood drained from their bodies in the exact same way. 5,000 cattle are found mutilated in eastern Texas in the exact same way. 15,000 go missing from Rwanda the next year. 5,000 go missing from British Columbia. 30,000. 30,000 people go missing from rural western Australia. Now, Take a moment and be honest with yourself. How long after I mentioned attacks and disappearances did it take you to realize I was completely full of shit about all that? Hmm? Was it, was it after the Texas tattle, cattle? Was that the part that didn't feel right? Or were you still kind of in when I finally got to 30,000 people going dis- missing from Australia? If, if even Australia didn't throw you off, if after Australia you were like, holy shit, I knew it. Well, you need to calm the fuck down about aliens, all right? You need to listen to this podcast a little more. And you, and you need to watch X-Files reruns and Ancient Aliens a little bit less. No. Since 1969, the government has not funded any UFO research. Uh, nothing's happened. Or at the very least, not officially. Now, if you want to believe that shit's still going on at Area 51, that's fine. It makes life more fun. All right? More on Area 51 later, by the way. A lot more. Going to really get into that. Okay. So before shutting down... Uh, Apparently from 1947 to 1969, a total of 12,618 sightings were reported to Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book. Of these, 701 remain unidentified to this day. Bet you alien fans love that, don't you? 701 opportunities in just the years between 47 and 69 to still believe, to quote Agent Mulder from the X-Files, that the truth is out there. All right. I just liked it during the administrations of Truman, Eisenhower, JFK, and Lyndon B. Johnson. The leader of the free world was occasionally briefed on UFOs. You know, just, well, well, let's have it. How, how's Blue Book progressing? Anything we can't explain? Uh, yes, Mr. President, uh, there were a, a few flashing lights this week. Uh, uh, we ha- we're having a hard time wrapping our heads around. Uh, some on the team uh, do think they could be extraterrestrial in origin. Uh, most on the team... Uh, believe that we were just looking at fireflies through some shitty binoculars after too many mint juleps. Huh, okay. Well, can, can continue, can carry on with that to get to the bottom of that. And what about the Space Fortress spotted over East Germany? 
uh, uh, well, Mr. President, it, it, it seems that the term space fortress may have been a, a, a tad dramatic. A spy close to the situation on the ground uh, believes what was seen was actually a shiny kite, that, a, quote, shiny kite. Uh, some kid didn't hold on tight enough, and in all fairness to the tens of thousands of dollars spent investigating this situation, it was a very shiny kite. Ah, that figures goddamn commie kids with their soft, non-capitalistic hands trying to hold on to their poorly manufactured kites. Thank you for this brief and landing. Now leave me be. I'm late for a cryptozoology meeting. I hear we're finally zeroing in on that elusive chupacabra. I don't know. They really were nervous about UFOs for a while. Uh, mounting reports of UFOs over Eastern Europe and Afghanistan prompted concern that the Soviets were making rapid progress in that area. CIA officials knew that the British and Canadians were already experimenting with flying saucers of some kind. Clearly not super successful experiments since we still don't have them today. Uh, Project Y was a Canadian-British-U.S. developmental operation to produce a non-conventional flying saucer-type aircraft. And agency officials feared the Soviets were testing similar devices. Adding to the concern was a flying saucer sighting by U.S. Senator Richard Russell from Georgia and his party while traveling on a train in USSR in October 1955. After extensive interviews of Russell and his group, however, CIA officials concluded that Russell's sighting did not support the theory that the Soviets had developed saucer-like or unconventional aircraft. Uh, Herbert Scoville Jr., the assistant director of OSI, wrote that the objects observed probably were normal jet aircraft in a steep climb. What a dumb shit. Uh, if it really was a plane. A guy just, so, Senator, you're positive that you saw a UFO. 100%. There's nothing else it could have been. Nothing. Uh, definitely extraterrestrial, yes. I, I, I bet my career on it. Could it maybe have been a normal plane taking off? Yeah, okay. Well, well, you know, hmm, I hadn't considered a, a plane. T taking off, you say? Well, <laughs> uh, now that I... Now that I really think on it, uh, yes, 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 yeah, that's entirely possible. Uh, probably even. Yeah, mm -hmm. yes, I'll, I'll, I'll grab my things. I'll, I'll show myself out. Well, uh, uh, official funding may have stopped, but the sightings did not. Over the years, thousands have stepped forward to claim that they've seen or been abducted by UFOs. Uh, among these witnesses are more than a few famous names. Uh, these, <laughs> I love this shit. Uh, Miyuki Hatoyama, wife of the current Japanese prime minister, wrote in a 2008 autobiography that one night while she was sleeping, quote, my soul rode on a triangular-shaped UFO and went to Venus, end quote. Well, thankfully, her soul was later returned. Thank Christ. That'd be terrifying, you know, walking around knowing those pesky aliens had your soul tucked away, you know, maybe in the rings of Saturn, stuck on some comic, stuck in Venus or some shit. Uh, U.S. Representative Dennis Kucinich from Ohio, uh, he provided one of the oddest moments in the tumultuous 2008 presidential election when he affirmed in a televised debate that in the 1980s, he and actress Shirley MacLaine witnessed an unidentified flying object over her house. You have to keep in mind, he told Tim Russert, that Jimmy Carter saw a UFO, and also more people in this country have seen UFOs than I think approve of George Bush's presidency. Yo, zing! Now, in fact, Jimmy Carter did once report seeing a UFO in Georgia and pledged during his presidential campaign to declassify all government files on flying saucers. Once elected, he did not do that. Probably because, <laughs> probably because I'm guessing, he knew if he declassified all of them, uh, these alien hunters would be like, ah, shit, this, this is nothing, you know? And then he would just look like an idiot for claiming he saw something there's no official record of whatsoever. Um, or, or, you conspiracy nuts listening, maybe he did see some shit, and when he finally got those secret files, he realized there was a whole thing happening. 
he probably got he probably he got to the White House and they just you know they went down to some secret bunker ninety you know feet underneath the White House where some Illuminati alien is is running probably lizard probably space lizard he probably was taken down into the secret space lizard bunker where actually let's go further than that he probably already is a space lizard and he just said that uh, in a, in a moment of confusion and then he realized like oh shit I can't talk about space because I'm a lizard. And they'll catch on to us, and the people will rise up against our, you know, space lizard, lizard <laughs> ruling situation we have going. Oh, my God. Okay, so here, here's one, my favorite. My favorite of the uh, celebrity scientists, Tom DeLong, uh, Blink-182. I uh, got to talk about him. Uh, Carol on the TimeSuckPodcast.com message board, she, she was the one who, who pointed me to him, uh, asked me to look into Tom DeLong, and so glad I did. He, he's the founder, former co-frontman, guitarist for Blink-182, uh, frontman for Angels and Airwaves. The dude is super into aliens. Uh, he believes, for instance, and this is taken from a 2016 Rolling Stone interview, in the Airships of 1897 conspiracy. And that's when blimp-shaped objects were recorded across the West over three months. And Tom says, quote, they went across the country and landed in certain cities, and mayors and senators met with the pilots. It was national news. And then they completely disappeared. No one knows who they were. All right, well, you know, uh, there was some truth to no one, no one knowing who they were, and I'll, I'll explain that. Because uh, I examined it. Uh, I spent a couple hours on the airships of 1897. Um, there really were reports uh, of airships floating over the skies of St. Louis, Nashville, uh, a lot of sightings in Texas, etc. for a few months in 1897. There was also a bunch of sightings uh, actually in the fall of 1896. Uh, California went crazy, San Francisco, Sacramento, Bakersfield, Los Angeles, which back in 1897 only had 53,000 people. Hard to fathom if you've been there recently. Uh, basically, all of California were reporting these flying airship sightings as well. The East Coast was getting some action. There was Harrisburg, Pennsylvania uh, sightings, on and on and on. Uh, the little town of Jefferson, Iowa, even reported a spaceship crashed uh, in 1897 in the, in the Jefferson B. What a cute little name for a paper. The old Jefferson B. Uh, yeah, crash, you guys. Airship went down in a farmer's field. Citizens went out to investigate, crawled into the ship's wreckage to find a clean and tidy cockpit amid the rubble. Apparently, the little aliens had snuck out. They found no corpses. The Bee also reported that in other parts of Greene County, there were other crashes, and, check this out, various alien creatures were captured. This is in the fucking newspaper. I mean, that sounds intense, right? Well, keep in mind that Greene County, Iowa, its population was roughly 15,000 at this time. Some, did some U.S. Census re- digging on that one. And, and that's for the whole county. The population of Jefferson itself was about 2,300. So we're not talking about Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. We're talking about small town cornfield motherfuckers being approached by a couple farmers who maybe drank a little too much moonshine and came up with some crazy shit. A bullshit alien sighting. And the sightings in the late 19th century uh, were obvious bullshit. I'm going to prove it to you. I want to prove it to you. Check, the, check this out. There is a crash story first revealed on page 5 of the April 19th, 1897 edition of the Dallas Morning News. It's written by S.E. Hayden, a part-time correspondent. And this is like, this story, from all my research, represents a lot of what these stories, how they look like. Uh, but he gets into the paper. He's a part-time correspondent and a, and a full-time cotton buyer. And the title of his story is A Windmill Demolishes It. Uh, the text went on to say that at, okay, here we go, Aurora, Wise County, Texas, April 17. Uh, About 6 o'clock in the morning, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of the airship, which had been sailing through the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer the earth than ever before. 
Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order, for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour and gradually settling toward the earth. It sailed directly over the public square, and when it reached the north part of town, collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill and went to pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and water tank and destroying the judge's flower garden. I thought he had a flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one bored. And while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. Mr. T.J. Weems, the United States Signal Service Officer at this place and an authority on astronomy, gives us his opinion that he was a native of the planet Mars. Papers found on his person, evidently the record of his travels, are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. The ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive power. It was built of an unknown metal, resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver, and it must have weighed several tons. The town is full of people today who are viewing the wreck and gathering specimens of the strange metal from the debris. The pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow. All right. Get the fuck out of here. What? This explosive encounter was largely forgotten until 1966. And then Dr. Alfred E. Krauss, the director of the Kilgore Research Institute of West Texas University, made a couple of visits to the crash site. Using a metal detector, he found some 1932 car license plates. He found some old stove lids, a few horse bridle rings, and nothing else. There was nothing to indicate that several tons of unusual metal was lurking anywhere in the vicinity. Of course, there was no metal. There was never a crash. These lunatics and attention hordes made all this shit up. I know they did. You know what? Because you know what else they had besides liars in the 1890s? Fucking good cameras. They had good cameras. All right? You mean to tell me these hillbillies found an actual alien? An alien? They think it's from Mars. Wearing a little suit. Got his fucking alien hieroglyphic journal. All right? And, and of course they think he's from Mars because it, no one knew yet that Mars was a dusty, unbearably cold, uninhabited pile of red shit dust yet. But, they, li, the, you know, listen to the Elon Musk time suck to learn about how fucking horrible Mars is. They find a real Martian they take the time to hold a funeral for. They're going to have a funeral for this guy, but they don't bother to take one goddamn photo. I don't care if you don't have a camera guy in Aurora, all right? A town of roughly 3,000 people at that time. 3,000 people who apparently didn't have a working brain amongst them, if they can't figure it out, might be important to head to Dallas, find them one of those fancy camera gentlemen, and have him, I don't know, document life from another planet. But of course they don't do that because none of them saw anything. Liars. But, you know, but it's bullshit that persists to this day. It's, it's, it's still the town's claim to fame 120 years later. The most important part of the Wikipedia page, you type Aurora, Texas into Google, and it autofills with alien grave. But you dig a little bit, and you find that, you know, Time Magazine interviewed Etta Piquez, who claimed that Hayden, that, you know, the report's author, that the, the old cotton fucking salesman, had fabricated the entire story, stating that uh, uh, she said that Hayden, quote, wrote it as a joke to bring interest to Aurora. The railroad bypassed us, and the town was dying. Well, there you go. All right, case closed on that one. But what about all those other airship stories Tom was talking about? All right, you do a little quick research, you find that the, the, the blimps, a.k.a. Air, airships, uh, were in 1852. They were invented in 1852 Excuse me, by Frenchman Henry Giffard. Uh, he built the first powered airship, which consisted of a 143-foot-long cigar-shaped gas-filled bag with a propeller powered by a three-horsepower steam engine. 
Uh, it flew from, from Paris to Ellencourt, France, 27 kilometers. I don't know how it did that on a, on a fucking lawnmower engine, but it did. Uh, and this is 45 years before the 1897 sightings. I mean, as early as 1783... Uh, the Montgolfier brothers uh, can cause a huge sensation throughout the civilized world when before a crowd that included uh, King Louis uh, XVI and, and Marie Antoinette, they heated the air inside of an envelope of aluminum varnish to feta and launched a sheep, a duck, and a rooster onto an eight-minute, two-mile flight across the royal palace of Versailles. It was the first ever flight to, to carry a living creature. Uh, balloons were used by the French to transport letters and passengers out of besieged Paris during the Franco, uh, Franco-Prussian War between September 1870 and January 1871. 66 flights, of which 58 land safely, carry 110 passengers and up to 3 million letters out of Paris. By 1895, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, the old Zeppelin guy, uh, patents a rigid airship that patents uh, balloon gas cells with rigid framework. That's four years before the sightings. Also... Think about this. The Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, the agency that regulates civilian av- aviation, wasn't established until 1958. So before the FAA, there was the Commerce Act, passed in 1926, fostering air commerce, issuing and enforcing air traffic rules, licensing pilots, blah, blah, blah. And all their rules were enforced by the Department of Commerce, who, who I doubt were taken seriously. No one's ever said, like, quick, quick guys, hide our unregistered plane. Some Department of Commerce agents are speeding this way. So prior to 1926, though, and say, oh, I don't know, 1897, airships were 100% technologically possible. They were definitely around, had been so for 45 years, and no one was regulating the sky. You didn't have to get a building permit to make one, no pilot's license, nothing. So if you and some well-to-do adventurous friends could afford to build an airship, of which you needed to notify no one that you were doing, you could fly it wherever and whenever you fuck you wanted to, and you also had to notify absolutely no one you were doing any of that. And all of this is going on in an era when anyone could also be a local journalist, as we've learned. And, and, and we've already established, you know, some of these, some of these uh, journalists were more sensationalist than a lot of today's shitty journalists. And there's no photographic evidence of any of this stuff, even though it happened in an era when cameras were readily available. I mean, it's not like, you know, it is now. One of the fucking cell phones, or even just handhelds, but there was, you know, look, go look. You can find old fucking Civil War fucking pictures. Well, they couldn't take a picture of this stuff? This completely explains the mysterious 1897 airship sightings to me. Uh, and in 2009, American author J. Allen Danilek wrote a book called The Great Airship of 1897, in which he made the case that the mystery airship, uh, I guess he thought it was one, was the work of an unknown individual, possibly funded by a wealthy investor from San Francisco. I got, oh, this was the California one. Uh, to build an airship prototype as a test vehicle for a later series of larger passenger-carrying airships. Exactly. They were testing things out, and people didn't have the nightly news. They didn't, have, they didn't know why it was happening. No one was notifying the papers. So they just speculate. So back to Tom DeLong. He, he reads be, bits and pieces about this shit from fucking crystal-type websites, you know, all that dipshit stuff, uh, where apparently people started adding meetings with senators uh, to the story, and he sees this as proof for both UFO existence and a big UFO cover, uh, cover-up because no one's talking about it now. Yeah, way to be objective there. Uh, DeLong also wrote a book I will never read, called Secret Machines, Book One, Chasing Shadows, a 700-page novel he wrote with UNC Charlotte Shakespeare professor A.J. Hartley. Uh, not, not a fucking physics professor, a Shakespeare professor. Okay. Uh, though fictional, it's written with information DeLong says he gleaned, quote, from sources within the aerospace industry and at the Department of Defense and NASA. <laughs> then he adds, quote, that sentence specifically 
was approved for me to say. Oh, no, it wasn't. Chasing Shadows theorizes that alien technology not only exists, but that the government has known about it for decades and has even replicated some of it. Dude, man, the drugs must have been so good in the Blink-182 fucking, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of their fame. I mean, this guy is so full of shit. Why would NASA share anything with some pop-punk musician? Seriously. I mean, really think about that. I don't care how much of a celebrity you are. The Department of Defense isn't going to help you to write a fucking book. Denzel Washington's agent could call the Department of Defense and be like, Hey, uh, Denzel wants to talk to your top officials and learn about all the secret alien technology you have. Oh, okay. Yep, no problem. Uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and put General Go Fuck Yourself on the line. Click. One final note about Tom DeLong. Uh, in 2005, DeLong formed Angels and Airwaves, an ambitious group, mixes punk with U2-like anthems. And DeLong predicted it would be, quote, the greatest rock and roll revolution for this generation and compared it to the second coming of Christ. Uh-huh. Compared his band to the second coming and was serious, not, not joking. So that, that's the kind of, you know, headspace this guy is in, this alien believer. Uh-huh. Well, uh, Tom, Tom is, is not alone in his alien sightings as far as kind of musicians and celebrities. Uh, even though he's not as famous as some of the others, again, I had to dig in with him because of, of Carol hitting me up, and, I, and I'm thankful because the balloon stuff kind of helped me uh, get my head around some Roswell stuff coming up a little bit later. So I'm glad I, I, I went into the, the balloons of 1897, which I wouldn't have had I not known about Tom DeLonge's uh, insane theories. So uh, I'm not going to go uh, in-depth on the rest of these celebrities as much as I did with Tom because I want to get to Roswell and Area 51, but here's some fun info about a few other people you may have heard of. It's time for some weird facts. Weird facts. Sammy Hagar, uh, former Van Halen frontman, the guy who sang I Can't Drive 55. Uh, that was one of uh, the very first cassettes uh, I ever bought. And it's the first song I actually remember sharing with a, a little buddy of mine when I was like seven or eight years old. I remember taking this kid to my room where I had my turbo bass, auto reverse, boom box, be jealous. And I was like, listen to this. And then I just remember as I, as I pushed play and hit the turbo bass button, I remember, <laughs> I remember I just watched his face as I played I Can't Drive 55 because I thought that was the dopest shit I'd ever heard. And I wanted to witness his mind being blown in front of me. Anyway, in his autobiography, Red, My Uncensored Life in Rock, Sammy describes an alien encounter. He says, quote, I was lying in bed one night, dreaming. I saw a ship and two creatures inside of the ship. I couldn't see their faces. They were connected to me, tapped into my mind through some kind of mysterious wireless connection, end quote. The singer explained that although this happened in a dream, he knew, you guys, he knew, he knew, he knows the experience is part of something real, with actual knowledge being transferred. Sure, it was real, Sammy. You know, I, you know, I bet those aliens, they wanted to tap your mind so they could access your recipe for that sweet Cabo Wabo tequila you've been distilling up. Actually, I don't know if that stuff's any good. It's called Cabo Wabo, so it's, it's probably shit. Okay, pop star Robbie Williams. Uh, here's another one. Former member of Take That, sang the 1995 hit Back for Good. Whatever I said, whatever I did, I didn't mean it. I just want you back for good. I want you back. I want you back. I want you back for good. I apologize for that. I couldn't help myself. I remember turning that song up uh, when I was taking a girl out for a date back in 1997 when I was a Gonzaga student in my little beat-up Nissan pickup and talking about how much I liked it. And then shortly after that, I dropped her off, and we didn't have a second date. So smart girl. Anyway, back in 2006, uh, best-selling English singer Robbie Williams took a hiatus from his musical career to explore the world of UFOs and extraterrestrial life. He and journalist John Ronson headed into the Nevada desert to meet UFO abductees 
and gather their own evidence. <laughs> Keep in mind that his career was on fire when he did this. Take that. You might not have heard of them because they weren't as big here in the States as they were in the UK. They were a super group in the UK. I mean, he just released uh, a number one solo album in the UK in 2005. He'd released another one uh, in the fall of 2006 when he gave up on devoting his life to finding those pesky aliens hanging out in the desert. Fucking sneaky aliens. They're probably hiding in some lizard Illuminati tunnels under the Nevada mountains or something. You know, or, maybe, or maybe he did see those aliens, but those goddamn space lizards manipulated his mind, controlled his thoughts from their moon-based weapon thing. Damn you, space lizards! If you don't know what all these space lizard references are, by the way, just check out the Lizard Illuminati episode of Time Suck. Uh, well, Robbie still believes, though. He still believes, even though he didn't find what he wanted in the, in the desert, because he, he's claimed to see UFOs three times with his own eyes. Once when he was a kid in England, again when he was in Beverly Hills, and once more after writing a song about alien contact. Uh-huh. Sure, sure, sure you were. Uh, I'm sure you saw him. Must be nice to be wealthy, talented, and insane. That's, that's a recipe for a fun and exciting life. Of course you saw him after you write that goddamn song. You were just thinking about it all the time. Okay, William Shatner, another one. Captain Kirk, baby. Now, I'm including the Shatner, uh, even though he retracted a statement saying he actually saw aliens firsthand. Years ago, he said he saw UFOs after crashing his motorcycle in the desert. Because aliens love the desert almost as much as they love rocks. You know, deserts are where mirages happened. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Anyway, he later admitted he lied about this in an autobiography. Uh, he did say, though, something really cool that resonates with me in a 2010 interview with the Montreal Gazette. He says, quote, there is no doubt that there is life out there. The mathematics of it lead you to that absolute conclusion. In my mind, there is no doubt that the universe teems, teems with life in all forms. I fucking love hearing that from Captain Kirk. You know, Star Trek reminds me of my, uh, my it's just like a great childhood memories. Watch it with my dad. Uh, he loved that show, loves it still. Growing up, I loved it. When I wasn't with him because of divorce or, you know, kind of life circumstances, I could, I could watch a little Star Trek and, and feel a little closer to Pop, which I've never called him Pop. I don't know why I said Pop. I called him Dad. But, uh, but anyway, enough sentimental emotion. Uh, Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd, one of the Ghostbusters, man. One of the Coneheads, the Blues brother. All right, well, during uh, Dan Aykroyd's appearance on the Huff Post show, he revealed that he has seen four UFOs and believes in extraterrestrial life. He says two specifically were definitely aerial constructs of some kind. One of them with a light and one of them dull gray, and they were structures, one of them going very slow, one of them hovering over me. All right, then he described a story of, of one of his drivers. One of his drivers said that he used to be a cook in the Air Force uh, at their Strategic Air Command Center, and that one day they were all watching a radar screen with an object flying 70,000 miles per hour and whip-turning. All right. Really? The fucking the cook was invited into the Strategic Air Command headquarters to watch the fucking UFO? That, that would never happen. Why doesn't Dan Aykroyd question that? I don't know. You know, it's just if, if he wouldn't have added the cook thing, I, I would have maybe been a little more open to Dan Aykroyd's story. But when he presents that, it's like, well, check this other thing out. My cook, <laughs> my cook was it, you know? He was, he was a fucking, he was making mashed potatoes. And then they're like, hey, you, making mashed potatoes way in the back. Get up to floor nine. Get up into the control center. We want to show you some aliens. When the fuck is that ever going to happen in life? Uh, if, you want, if you want to know more about Dan Aykroyd and his thoughts on aliens, he has an entire documentary devoted to him thinking about aliens. It's, it's, uh, it's Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. It's, it's a 2012 uh, shitty demo- documentary where he talks about aliens. Uh, the whole thing's on YouTube. And watch it if you're terribly bored. Uh, Fran Drescher, Fran from The Nanny, not only the star of that super popular 90s sitcom, but also the co-creator of that show, if you didn't know that. The beautiful woman with the laugh of a coked-up 
murderous hyena. Well, Fran believed, uh, uh, that, believes that both she and her ex-husband, Peter Jacobson, the, the, the producer she co-created The Nanny with, were both abducted by aliens long before they met each other. In a 2012 interview with Huffington Post, man, I guess they like to bring alien shit out of people, uh, she says, you know, it's funny because Peter, uh, that's her, that's her ex-husband, Peter and I both saw aliens before we knew each other, doing the same thing, driving on the road with our dads. We were both in junior high. A few years later, we met, and we realized that we had the same experience. I think that somehow we were programmed to meet. We both have this scar. It's the exact same scar on the exact same spot. Well, there's your proof, isn't it? But ex-husband uh, Peter Mark Jacobson wasn't so convinced of the couple's extraterrestrial past. He says Fran got the small scar on her hand from a drill bit or burning herself holding a cup of water as a kid. Fran's like, no way. No way. She goes, quote, I said to him, that's what the aliens programmed us to think. That's what Fran explains. She says, but really, that's where the chip is. <laughs> what an in- no wonder they got divorced. What an infuriating personality. Like, no logic you, you present to somebody like that ever fucking sinks in. Yeah, well, that's what they want us to think. Like, once, once you go to that place in your head, well, that's what they want us to think. <laughs> like, you, you've lost all hope of listening to reason. Like, there's no, there's no arguing with a person who's like, well, that, mm, you disagreeing is a, it fits into their plan. It's what they want us to think. It's part of the conspiracy. That shit drives me crazy. You want to believe that aliens knocked you out and put a chip in your hand? Fuck, all right, fine. And they did it to your husband's hand? Fine. Have it examined. You know, God, if only technology existed to find out if the chip is in there. If only there was some kind of, I don't know, magnetic resonance imaging machine that could find out for sure. If only there was some kind of magical x-ray machine whose exact purpose was to detect foreign presences in your body. Go to the fucking doctor, Fran. If I thought, if I truly believed that aliens had some kind of tracking chip put inside my body, I'm getting it checked out. I'm normally not that quick to rush off to the doctor. I'll wait out a flu. I'll ignore an infection. But alien thought control chip programming my decisions? Yeah, I'm going to go to urgent care. I'm going to get that shit uh, x-rayed ASAP. Finally, uh, all Scientologists, all of them, all Scientologists believe in UFOs. All right, Will Smith, Travolta, fuck all of them, way into it because it's integral to their religion slash cult slash nonsense. Scientologists believe that Xenu, the dictator of the Galactic Confederacy, brought billions of his people to Earth, then known as Tikhik, a fucking nonsense word that L. Ron Hubbard made up, in DC-8-like spacecraft 75 million years ago. He stacked them around volcanoes and killed them with hydrogen bombs. Because that's what you do when you want to kill people. You want to fucking fly them in a large spacecraft over a great distance to then kill him on a volcano. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Official Scientology scripture holds that the Thetans, the immortal spirits of these aliens, adhere to humans, causing spiritual harm. And they believe that because what L. Ron Hubbard wrote when he made up Scientology, uh, and yes, uh, there will be a point when I do a Scientology episode on Time Suck because it is way too big of a topic to get in right now. It's fucking insane. I think all religion is insane to some degree uh, as a skeptic, but Scientology, oh, <laughs> sorry for whistling your ear right there. That just came out of me. Your mind has to go to a real, real special place to be able to swallow that particular belief pill. All right, let's get the hell out of here. Weird facts. Okay, so now we have an understanding of the history of UFO sightings. You know, a little, little sampling of people's firsthand accounts, and, and I give it an overview of how the U.S. government has handled UFOs. So, uh, so now... All right, let's, let's suck into the mother of all UFO sightings, the holy grail of the UFO true believer, Roswell. 
All right, let's start with the crash description. I Googled Roswell UFO crash, and I had to wade through uh, a lot of horseshit uh, before arriving at the FBI's website where I could read their official report of the incident. Now, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you might be thinking, that's the last place you should look. They're covering it up. I can hear that being said by Agent Mulder. Come on, Scully, wake up. You think they're going to tell you the truth? Well, believe it's the truth or not. Here's the report. FBI, Dallas, 7847. Director of Cincinnati, urgent. Flying disc information concerning. Headquarters, 8th Air Force. Tele- telephonically advised this office that an object purporting to be a flying disc was recovered near Roswell, New Mexico this date. The disc is hexagonal in shape and was suspended by a balloon by cable, which balloon was approximately 20 feet in diameter. Further advised that the object found resembles a high-altitude weather balloon with a radar reflector, but that telephonic conversation between their office and Wright Field had not borne out this belief, disc and balloon being transported to Wright Field by a special plane for examination. Information provided to this office because of national interest in case, and the fact that the National Broadcast Company, NBC, Associated Press, and others attempting to break story of location of disc today. Advised would request Wright Field to advise Cincinnati office results of examination. No further investigation being conducted. End. Okay, a uh, quick note here. Wright Field that they're talking about is most likely a reference to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base just outside of Dayton, Ohio, where Projects Sign, Grudge, uh, and Blue Book, Blue Book excuse me, were all headquartered. Remember, Project Sign was officially established in December of 1947, so it's like five months after Roswell. So they probably already had some you know, people in place they were, they were interested in these unexplained flying phenomena of recent months. Fucking balloons, huh? The entire UFO hysteria from 1897 and Roswell, bunch of goddamn balloons. All the interest in little green men, Martians, flying saucers, etc., all go being traced back to people not understanding how fucking balloons looked in the sky. Part of me really hopes that's true because it's just so ridiculous. And if you're wondering why the NBC uh, or NBC and the AP were involved, um, if it was just a balloon, remember that on June 24th, Kenneth Arnold claimed to see nine flying objects around Mount Rainier in Washington. All those other reports of people seeing it, you know, got big news. The term flying saucer was coined, and now there's tons of copycat sightings springing up around the country. You know, UFO sightings are essentially, like I said, trending, have huge social currency. Everyone wants to believe. It's on the collective mind of the whole nation. And then in the midst of this hysteria, 14 days uh, after Arnold, Roswell happens. You think that's a coincidence? Bullshit. Of course people thought it was some Martian. Everyone is looking into the skies, begging to see something they can tell other people is an alien spaceship. Also in the summer of 1947, a large number of weather balloons uh, with metallic radar testing attachments were released into the New, into the New Mexico skies uh, from the Alamo Gordo Army Airfield in New Mexico. This was a classified project because, remember again, uh, you know, World War II has just ended, the Cold War is uh, getting ready to start, and coming up with new military technology is a huge national priority. And finally, there was no initial reports of bodies at the balloon crash site. I didn't know that. Those didn't surface until years later because that's how long it took those attention seekers and fucking lunatics to make them up. So, uh, and you might be thinking, if you're, if you're a skeptic of the government, you might be thinking, well, couldn't ask for a better time to sneak real aliens in, could you? That's, that's what the conspiracy theorist in my head saying. Right, right when you could easily explain it away, that's when they sneak in. That's perfect. All right, easy. Inner molder, easy. Okay. So that's, that's the official Roswell story. So now let's hear the conspiracy version. I'm going to refer to a 2017 uh, article uh, interviewing Jan Harzan, the chief executive of the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, who believes that the military covered up what really happened at Roswell. Uh, when he was speaking to Forbes.com, 
Mr. Harzan was asked if he thought Roswell was real or a hoax, and he said, real. Get a copy of the video presentation of Recollections of, Re Recollections of Roswell filmed by MUFON member and well-known UFO researcher Stanton Friedman. And he continues, it is interviews with some 30 survivors of Roswell, including first-hand witnesses, their spouses, and their children. What they tell you will send chills up your spine. If you don't believe something extraordinary happened after watching this video, then nothing will convince you. I can tell you this. It was no weather balloon. He was then asked uh, why the government uh, appeared determined to cover up alleged incidents of alien visitations such as Roswell. He says, quote, one possible reason is because they believe, rightly or wrongly, that Earth's population is not ready for such a revelation. Other thoughts are that the knowledge would create widespread panic, cripple the stock market, and religion as we know it. Another possible reason is that the technology these beings have is so far advanced, whether it be faster than, national, or than light travel, time travel, or other far advanced technology, that it poses a national security threat to America, especially if these capabilities were to fall into enemy hands. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, FYI, uh, MUFON is the world's largest organization dedicated to research of UFO and alleged alien sightings. Uh, it keeps a global database of incidents going back years. It's also featured in the History Channel series Hangar One uh, about UFOs because uh, if you've watched the History Channel uh, anytime recently, you, you, you would know that the History Channel no longer fucking cares at all uh, about any historical accuracy and just about anything they do. They're a fucking joke of a network. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, entertaining, but, oh, Jesus. For people watching that being like, oh, let's watch some facts. Eh, I don't know. Um, so, and, and, and here's the side note on Jan Harzan. Jan's interest in UFOs began at the age of eight uh, when he read an article on Donald Kehoe and N.I. Kneecap, sorry, in Argosy Magazine. Based on this and other research, he and his brother did over the next two years. They made a decision to build a flying saucer, believing that the electromagnetic propulsion was the key to how these craft were able to travel such great distances. While in the process of doing this, they were also visited by a real UFO no more than 30 feet from them, with no visible means of propulsion other than making a humming noise before shooting off over the horizon. Did that happen? Did that happen, Jan? When I was eight, I thought, <laughs> I remember one day, I thought a lost tribe of Native Americans, somebody that the government had just never found, were still living out in the woods in Idaho and that they were watching me. I truly thought uh, I, I, was, I was watching uh, <laughs> or being watched by a lost tribe of Native Americans. It's called having an active imagination and being eight, you dipshit. Okay, so uh, off of Mr. Harzan's recommendation, um, dun, 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 sorry. I, I did watch Recollections, uh, Recollections of Roswell, excuse me. The entire documentary is readily available on YouTube uh, if you do want to see it. Uh, the first interview is some old cowpoke-looking fellow named Bill Brazel, who says his ranch superintendent dad was the first one to find debris in the morning after the UFO crashed 75 miles northwest of Roswell. Bill says his dad told him there was a bad thunderstorm the night before and uh, that he found the debris, started picking it all up, put it in his truck, brought it all to Roswell, and visited the sheriff's department. And then they called the Air Force. The Air Force then swore his dad to secrecy and came and picked up the debris. God, it almost sounds like maybe the storm knocked down the military's new radar testing weather balloon and then told people not to talk about it because it was a secret weapon project. This is fucking the proof that Mr. Hazan spoke of. This, this is his go-to unequivocal proof of space life. Well, th this spine-chilling documentary goes on to interview more people who talk uh, about being told by the Air Force to be quiet. It also has moments when people like Barbara Duger uh, say she heard one of the people who saw the records say the military police told them if they told anyone 
about what they say. Not only would they be killed, but their whole family would be killed because they're in a movie now. Get the fuck out of here. I don't believe Barb for a second. Lots of people have talked about Roswell. All kinds of people have talked. Who's been killed? Who? No one. Whose family was killed? No one. It's nonsense. And then there are other interviews with military people talking about how strange the metal they found was, how it wouldn't break, wouldn't scratch. All right, so the military had some new plastic, you know, the, the, these cowpokes and lower-level military people hadn't seen in their rural 1950s New Mexico life. So, so what? It doesn't mean it came from space. That's a, that's a, big, that's a big leap in logic. These guys are the best at leaping in logic, too. They'll say that the, that the government is hiding something, and then they'll uh, jump to, like, teleportation and time travel. It's like, where does that come from? Why would aliens have that? Why do you think, why do you think that's possible for them to have it? Oh. So the Recollections uh, documentary ends with a big 30-minute interview with wreckage eyewitness Gerald Anderson. All right? This, this guy's the star of the documentary that Jan has touted as proof of UFOs. Like, like he's basing MUFON's, I, I, I would say... Their credibility largely on Gerald Anderson because he, he was the eyewitness man. And Gerald says that, that five-year-old him, his dad, his Uncle Ted, good old Uncle Ted, his favorite uncle. I, I don't know why I'm adding that shit. Uh, cousin Victor and his 20-year-old brother were looking for some, some agates, some rocks, just some amateur rock hounds out doing some, some agate hunting. And uh, he says that there were four aliens. Two were obviously dead, one injured, one totally fine, just walking around being an alien. And the one that was fine had placed the other three on some kind of like aluminum foil blankets underneath the spaceship, forming some kind of first aid on the others as they laid under the edge of their saucer, which he says was about 35 feet in circumference when they approached the ship. All right? The creatures were about four and a half feet tall. The healthy one spotted Gerald and his family, was scared at first, but then calmed down. You know, when his dad and uncle reassured it that they weren't there to hurt it. These creatures had big heads, very large, shiny black eyes. He talked a lot about their eyes being shiny and black and big. They had bluish-tinted, milky-white skin, no visible ears, but a hole where an ear should be, very small nose, just two little holes, a little bit of a bump, no hair, tiny slit of a mouth, basically like, like the picture. When you see of people doing alien stuff, it's, it's that picture is what he's describing, because that picture comes from this description. Uh, four fingers instead of five. They were wearing matchy one-piece, shiny metallic outfits, you know, some kind of extraterrestrial onesies. Sounds cozy. And then Gerald talks about seeing, you know, he says, he says flashing lights coming from, you know, inside of the disc in the spaceship. He, he remembers touching the spaceship, uh, that it was ice cold, like it had just come out of the freezer. It was super smooth. Uh, there was a weird smell emanating from the wreckage. He remembers his uncle trying to talk to the men, the spacemen, in Spanish. Because that's what you do. Yeah, he remembers his dad trying to talk to the spacemen in sign language. Fucking stop it. Really? You, you see something that clearly isn't human, and you just think, oh, I wonder, I wonder if it speaks Spanish. Are these, are these, hey, man, are these just some kind of space Mexicans I don't even know about? Maybe, maybe I'll try sign language. Maybe this is how deaf people talk. Maybe that's how they look. Maybe this is how deaf people look, like aliens. What are you talking about? Gerald remembers touching one of the dead aliens. That's bullshit. What, what your, your dad, and you see aliens in a crashed spaceship, and within minutes you're letting your five-year-old just go poke around their dead bodies? Get the fuck out of here. Gerald also says uh, some archaeologists and a bunch of archaeology students showed up at the crash site as well, thinking it was a meteorite. Because, you know, archaeologists and several of their students just hang around looking for meteorites. Since when do archaeologists look for meteorites, you dumb shit, Gerald? It's geologists is what you're thinking of, you numb nuts. Geologist is the word you wanted. Uh, Gerald says eventually they go back to their car where armed military personnel are waiting for them. Of course they are. And, the, and these armed military personnel took, took their family to some makeshift base that had been erected. Uh, all kinds of military, all armed to the teeth. The road was barricaded off. And then they were told to drive away and never talk about anything they saw again. The end. Holy shit. Where to begin? 
talking about how ludicrous this testimony is. First off, let's start with the military. Let's just start right there, okay? So let me get this straight. There was this huge military presence. They're all set up, but they're not set up at the crash site. They're letting just archaeologists and random families walk over and talk to aliens while they have a base set up nearby. That is such nonsense. And, okay, he's five. Why is the dude who was five when this happened the one telling the story? This is testimony given in 1992, shortly after his dad, uncle, and brother were all dead. How convenient, Gerald. Why not share that tale when they're alive? So maybe someone could uh, corroborate it. Because they wouldn't, because they would refute it. You liar. Uh, the archaeology students would have been around 65 in 1992. Why didn't they talk? Well, why didn't any of them come forward? Right? Also, you know, why did the military just let him go if it was so top secret? Why, why weren't their lives threatened? Why did his dad and uncle let him snoop around the wreckage, poke dead alien? You know? And you do a little more digging about Gerald, it's not good. You know? You find that this guy's story changed over the years. He was first interviewed by the uh, Springfield, Missouri news leader about Roswell in 1990 and originally said the alien's eyes were milky blue, not their skin. Later, he said their eyes were jet black and shiny. He made a big deal of that in the documentary. That's a huge detail change, okay? For something you supposedly remember so vividly. Also, uh, he said that the, uh, the archaeologist uh, was Dr. Uh, Buskirk. He said it was a guy named Dr. Buskirk. Turns out he had a teacher in high school named Dr. Buskirk who taught an anthropology class he took. You dipshit. That alone invalidates your story. You saw an archaeologist when you were five who had the exact same name of the teacher you'd later have in high school. A teacher, by the way, whose physical description matched the description he gave for the archaeologist in one of his interviews. Finally, later in life, same Gerald Anderson made up a story about na being a Navy SEAL. And some real SEALs found out and listed him on their wall of shame. Dude is a known liar. He loves attention. He loves a tall tale. Wants people to think he's cool. He got caught, up, he got caught in that one putting up flyers at a Springfield college after <laughs> he was offering a survival course taught by a Navy SEAL. Oh, my God. So he's full of shit. So that story, garbage. Garbage. But you might be thinking, well, what about those alien photos? The famous Roswell alien photos. Are they not proof of extraterrestrial life? Well, a closer analysis of the Roswell images uh, has revealed that the alien body is likely to be the mummified remains of a small child. Tiny placard hidden in one of the images apparently reads the mummified body of a two-year-old boy, according to this metro. Uh, the words San Francisco Museum appear on the placard. So, you know, wah, wah. So here's the conclusion about Roswell for me. Uh, I, I, I think any alien association with the crash that happened in 1947 is pure bullshit. And, and I promise you I went in wanting to believe. I really do. But I just get so frustrated with these idiots. After the crash, uh, there's an FBI conclusion I referenced earlier. The military holds a press conference explaining it was a weather balloon. Not ex actually 100% true. It's the Freedom of Information Act later unsealed government records, and the truth was that a Roswell balloon was part of the Project Mogul, a project focused on detecting uh, from high altitude and a long distance away low-frequency sound emissions generated by explosions and missiles, basically to make sure our enemies are not testing nuclear weapons in the age before satellite surveillance. So after this press conference, during which debris, foil, rubber, wood, uh, various uh, material from the crash site is shown, the story dies. It goes away. No one gave a shit about Roswell again until 1978, when UFO researchers like Stanton Friedman, the guy who interviewed the fucking dipshit Gerald in the Recollections of, uh, Recollections of Roswell, started digging up all these old stories from the 40s. It was Stanton, people like him, who put together this story, obtained by interviewing a bunch of these nuts, uh, that a UFO, you know, had indeed crashed at Roswell. Alien bodies had been recovered, and those bodies were hidden in a giant government cover-up. And where were those alien bodies in the spacecraft taken? <laughs> well, Area 51, of course. Many a conspiracy theorist jerk off at the fantasy of sneaking into that place, don't they? You know hundreds, if not thousands of people, if not millions, 
You know that they believe that Area 51 is the real-life version of, like, the Men in Black headquarters from the movie, where aliens are just fucking hanging around, shaking hands with government employees, they're sworn to secrecy. Come on, man, it's the digital age. Eventually, someone would fuck up and put an alien on Snapchat or Instagram. But anyway, let's learn a bit about Area 51. Uh, in August 2013, Jeffrey T. Richelson, a researcher at the Washington, D.C.-based National Security Archive, a nonprofit think tank, obtained declassified documents about the development and use of the U-2 and Oxcart surveillance aircraft in the 1950s and 60s. The documents made repeated references to Area 51 and detailed how it was selected as a testing area by the CIA. CIA again, they're, they're involved, they're getting their agents involved. Now, the CIA, the U.S. Air Force, and a defense contractor, Lockheed, uh, you know, now like Lockheed Martin, because of its remote location. They often included a map that confirmed its exact location. Uh, previous to this information, Area 51 had basically been the worst-kept secret in U.S. Uh, secret military base history. But in conspiracy, late-night AM radio, Art Bell, George Norrie, coast-to-coast land, uh, Area 51 is where we've reverse-engineered alien spacecraft, where we've cloned aliens, maybe faked the moon landing, Right? So, so why has Area 51 stirred up all these conspiracy theories? I mean, I do understand it on some level. It really was a top-secret base. That's not up for dispute. Satellite imagery of the area, approximately 80 miles northwest of Las Vegas, in the middle of the barren Nevada desert, was routinely removed from government databases, like it wasn't there. But in 2000, photographs taken by a Soviet orbital probe were obtained and published. Uh, the collection of photos uh, on the FAS, Federation of American Scientists website, shows the facility's growth from the late 1960s, uh, on, on through the years, including the construction of new buildings, new runway. The base itself uh, occupies only a fraction of the more 90,000 acres it sits on. It consists of a hangar, guard shack, a few radar antenna, some housing facilities, mess hall, offices, runways, shelters. The shelters are the little scoot and hide buildings designed so aircraft can quickly move undercover when satellites pass overhead to make it more secret. Some allege that uh, what you see on the surface is only a tiny part of the actual facility. They believe that surface buildings rest on top of a labyrinth of underground tunnels. Others claim the underground uh, facility has, uh, has up to 40 levels that is attached via underground railways to other sites in Los Alamos, White Sands, L.A. Skeptics quick to point out, though, that such a massive construction project would require an enormous labor force, tons of earth being removed. You know, they, they don't, they, likely what you see is what you get. But I, but I get the fantasy. Very, very sexy to think about a giant underground base. Uh, exciting to think that's possible. Even today, Area 51 is surrounded by thousands of acres of empty desert landscape. Uh, the Air Force has withdrawn lands from public use to help keep the base hidden from snooping eyes. For many years, observers would hike to elevated vantage po uh, points like Whitesides Peak or Freedom Ridge. Those areas have been seized now as well. Today, today if you want to see it at all, you have to make the strenuous hike to Tikaboo Peak, 26 miles away. From there, you can get like a tiny little glimpse, glimpse of maybe some flashing lights. You know, most commuters to Area 51 travel on unmarked Boeing 737s or Boeing 727s. The airspace above Area 51 is restricted to all except for those, those flights and military flights, uh, op, you know, that come from the base itself. The military classifies Area 51 as a military operating area. The borders aren't fenced, but they are marked with these orange poles and warning signs and strange, you know, like secretive security kind of forces. Signs tell you that photo photography is not allowed. Trespass on the property will result in a fine. Signs also warn that security is authorized to use deadly force on people who insist on trespassing. And so that, that just, you know, stokes the fires of the conspiracy theorists. All this secrecy, you know. But despite the government's uh, uh, efforts, it has been difficult to keep Area 51's activities totally secret. Like, here's some of the projects we now know have gone on there. There was the U-2 spy plane. It was Lockheed uh, working with the CIA to develop this plane that could fly at a high altitude, spy on other nations. 
you know, could fly up to 70,000 feet. This is a long time ago. In the early 1960s, the A-12 Oxcart is a surveillance aircraft uh, prototype. Featured like a wide disc-like fuselage, fuselage uh, made of shiny titanium. People probably thought that was a uh, uh, alien spacecraft. Actually, the LA Times article speculated that the aircraft's appearance and speeds, which could go up to Mach 3, led commercial pilots who encountered to assume they were seeing a UFO. The SR-71 Blackbird, uh, something that evolved from the A-12, became the successor to the U-2. You go Mach 3, 90,000 feet up in the air. And I'll, and I'll put some photos of some of these planes. You know, There's a bunch of other cool planes as well. So, you know, it's a secret military base. That's it. Why is that so hard to accept? If, if you've ever driven through the Nevada desert, by the way, which I have several times, from top to bottom, actually, you, you get why they put it there. It's, it's, it's in some of the most barren and uninhabited land in the U.S. And I believe the military does have a, a secret base, and, and it's okay for them to do so. I think it's, it's stupid and irresponsible to let other nations, especially nations we don't get along with, catch up to what we're doing military technology-wise. I also think people who try and sneak onto the base deserve to get shot. You don't have fucking clearance. Get out of there. It's like thinking you have the right to walk into your neighbor's house, check out what they're doing. You fucking entitled moron. But just thinking the military is, is making weapons slightly better than the ones we already have, that isn't that sexy, man. It's not exciting enough for some people. So they make shit up. And here's the best of what I could find of what they've made up about Area 51. These are my favorite Area 51 conspiracies. Uh, number one is the Roswell alien bodies are kept there and may still be alive. Number two, aliens are running the base. Ooh, that's a fun one. Number three, it's an interrogation center for captured aliens. It's like Guantanamo Bay for aliens, just fucking aliens being waterboarded for their alien info. Uh, number four, it's the headquarters. This is actually my favorite one, my very favorite one. It's the headquarters of the secret one world government, a.k.a. the Majestic 12, a secret government committee that has been laboring in the shadows for more than six decades. They're very old now, I guess. To work out an arrangement for a one world government in which the planet would jointly be ruled by human and extraterrestrial elites. Oh, man, the Majestic 12 sounds like a good time suck. Might have to look at them further. MJ-12, as conspiracy junkies refer to them, supposedly started as a blue-ribbon panel of scientists and military leaders created by President Harry Truman in 1947, shortly after the crash of alien spacecraft in Roswell, which we know now is bullshit. As the story goes, MJ-12 somehow eventually made contact with the aliens and brokered a power meeting between them and President Dwight Eisenhower. That, in turn, resulted in a deal in which the U.S. government got extraterrestrial technology in exchange for looking the other way when UFO crews mutilated cattle and abducted humans and stuck stuff up their butts. Mm-hmm. Sounds like uh, good fodder for some X-Files episodes for the overall arc of that series. The moon landing, this is number five, was staged there. Again, that's a time suck in, in and of itself, that conspiracy, uh, which I already kind of addressed in the Flat Earth episode. Uh, number six, Area 51 is the manufacturing site of the government's infamous black helicopters, which supposedly are used to conduct sinister missions, such as spraying clouds of toxic chemicals over sub uh, suburban neighborhoods. Keep us subdued and poisoned. There have even been people who claim they've been abducted by government black helicopters and turned over to flying saucer crews for examination, which suggests a link between the extraterrestrials and the human elite. Mm-hmm. Forging their one-world government, intermingling the two species. God, I used to hear so much about that kind of shit, about the black hel helicopters growing up. Oh, uh, man, I could, I could do a whole time suck on just the one-world government conspiracy. Uh, number seven, they're breeding alien-human hybrids. Ooh, much like the space lizards. And number eight, uh, nothing is happening there. Area 51 is just a big old shiny carrot. Just a shiny little carrot to distract you from the real secret nefarious base we don't even fucking know about. Wake up, you guys. So, to wrap up Roswell and Area 51, essentially it seems that it's, you know, a load of horseshit. 
The government has a secret military base set up in the Nevada desert for developing and testing experimental aircraft. And they're doing nuclear testing in nearby New Mexico in the 40s. And people not aware of experimental aircraft started seeing things that they couldn't explain, started talking about Martians. And then the notion of UFOs took over the zeitgeist and everyone started convincing themselves the skies were full of aliens. And why don't we have pictures? Why aren't more people sharing their UFO tales? Right? Because the government's covering it up. All right? Why are they covering it up? Because they made a deal with aliens. They sold out the human race. And then Chris Carter draws upon all this historical hysteria and creates the X-Files. And speaking of X-Files, what was key to that series? Finding Mulder's sister. And where did she go? Taken by aliens. So let's get into the abduction finale of this alien cornucopia of an episode. According again to John Jan Harzan of MUFON, one of the best documented cases of an extraterrestrial encounter is Travis Walton. November 5, 1975, near Snowflake, Arizona. Travis and six co-workers had just finished clearing the brush in the mountains and were heading back to town when they encountered a glowing, silvery, disc-shaped craft in the forest. Travis exited the cab of the truck they were in, approached the aircraft. In doing so, he was struck by a beam of light, knocking him to the ground unconscious. His buddies, filled with fear, hightailed it out, but returned a while later to both find Travis and the saucer gone. Five days passed when Travis suddenly reappeared to tell the story of where he had been. He reported being aboard a craft and seeing creatures that did not look human. All seven of the crew and Travis took and passed lie detector tests regarding their ordeal. Sounds legit, right? It's also the basis for the movie's Fire in the Sky, a movie that freaked a lot of people out. Well, not so legit. UFO researcher Philip, K, uh, Philip J. Glass considered it a hoax perpetuated for financial gain and discovered many discrepancies in the stories of Walton and his coworkers. After investigating the case, uh, Glass reported that the lie detector tests were poorly administrated, that Walton used polygraph countermeasures such as holding his breath, and uncovered an earlier failed polygraph test administrated by an examiner who concluded the case involved gross deception. Oh, they used the old Costanza method. It's not a lie if you believe it. Also, the day of Travis's sightings is also the day Air Force, uh, the Air Force was running training maneuvers directly above where Travis was working in the White Mountains. Fucking MUFON, man. Fucking Jan Harzan. All this key evidence for proof of alien life looks like total shit if you apply even the slightest logic and skepticism while looking at it. The real tragedy with Travis Walton is he didn't talk about being abducted and alien probed. I mean, um, anally probed. Why not, man? That's the best part of alien abduction stories. All that butt play. What were they doing in our butts anyway? You know, why do they want to get in there? Well, in the hundreds of insane UFO websites I've visited the past few days, believers think they're, they're maybe tagging us with some sort of tracking monitoring device, you know, like, white, like we tag creatures, except we don't put stuff up their butt, but that's what they like to do. They just put it in your butt. You'd think it would show up in an autopsy from time to time. Uh, or they're grabbing some fecal matter for some sort of research. Again, you'd think they could, they could find stool sample instead of just, you know, shoving shit up our ass and grabbing one of those cookies while it's still in the oven. Or they're collecting semen by sneaking up there and manipulating our prostate. Or, or they think it's fun to shove stuff up our asses. That last one was mentioned nowhere other than in my head. Uh, where's all that butt stuff come from? I fucking found it, you guys. Barney Hill, that's where it comes from. The first abductee to talk about being anally probed. The story that launched the extraterrestrial exploration of a thousand buttholes is a guy named Barney Hill. What a perfect name for an anal probe origin story. Wait, wait, who was the first guy to get a probe up his ass? Oh, that'd be Barney. Uh, Barney Hill. Barney Buttplay Hill. Old Barney Bottom, we call him. Well, old Barney Buttplay. Old Barney Bottom Stuffer was a postal worker living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with his social worker wife, Betty. Betty and Barney and some Buttplay. In September of 1961, the Hills uh, visited Canada 
as well as northern New York. They were driving home from this trip along Route 3 in New Hampshire when the night's events began to unfold. At about 10 p.m., Betty saw light in the sky that she said she first attributed to a falling star. However, when the couple pulled over to walk their dog, they looked at the object through a pair of binoculars and saw its many blinking lights fly right across the moon. This is why, around the time, Betty began thinking it was a flying saucer they were dealing with. The old flying saucer, the old misquote. At about 10.30, the craft descended upon the hills. Barney had a gun and got out of the car with it, but he did not fire upon the flying vehicle, probably because it wasn't there. Uh, the hills claimed they saw. After being told to keep looking uh, by one of the creatures that he could see through a window in the UFO, he went back to his wife in the car. Okay. <laughs> Uh, they both say that the, this was when a strange beeping and buzzing began. Just beep, boop, boop, beep, boop. Uh, when they heard these sounds again, they were 35 miles south location where the craft had first descended. They, were just fucking, they just lost some time. When Barney and Betty got home, neither one of their watches would work. Their clothes were inexplicably torn, supposedly covered in an odd dust. Their car had an odd, odd pattern on the trunk. They claimed that, uh, that they were, when they got put a compass uh, nearby, it would react strangely. It is unclear, why, I mean, why they would think to take a compass, but anyway, that's part of their story. Uh, the United States Air Force attributed this story to a misidentified planet, Jupiter, that's, the, that, that's what they think they saw, and declined further investigation. But they think they both lost time, you know, but neither had any injuries or indications of trauma. And then Betty had five consecutive nights of dreams that left her wondering what really happened to them. What happened to them that night? She remembered uh, some kind of humanoid creature taking her aboard the spaceship, by some kind of hypnotist method. Fucking space hypnotists, man. They're the worst space beings. And the, the Hills eventually saw hypnosis themselves. Uh, apparently they were really into it. And, they, and they, it revealed another story. Now we're getting into the butt stuff, you guys. Here it comes. Betty's descriptions from her dreams changed in subtle ways under hypnosis. Um, for Barney, things got a lot more sinister. Oh, boy, did they. He recalled being anally probed under hypnosis. And so it began. Some, so begins the low-hanging fruit for decades of comedians. Barney also thinks he had semen collected in an entirely separate procedure. Those fucking aliens, super interested in Barney's junk. Couldn't get enough of dicking around with his privates. Well, their doctor who conducted the hypnotism uh, concluded that Betty was a victim of her dreams uh, and that Barney had been brought into the delusion by proxy. That sounds right to me. In truth, Barney was less sure that he'd been abducted by aliens and his wife. But sadly, he, he passed away less than a decade after the initial incident, so we can't, you know, there's no more interviews with him. And, and like all alien stuff I come across, there is, it turns out, a very easy explanation for this story. This is from Jason uh, Calavito's website, jasoncalavito.com. He's an author and editor based in Albany, New York. Who, a lot of books like Cult of Alien Gods, H.P. Lovecraft, and Exter Extraterrestrial Pop Culture. Um, he's done stuff for American Heroes Channel, the History Channel, cited in stuff like The Atlantic. Uh, he considers himself um, a historical researcher and a skeptic. And, yeah, he looks for scientific explanations of this stuff. And he says, as I previously demonstrated, nearly all of the imagery Barney Hill used to describe his alien encounter closely paralleled imagery from the three episodes of the classic Outer Limits television series that aired in the three weeks immediately preceding his hypnotic session. Although Hill stated hypnosis, uh, started hypnosis in January 1964, his claims about the appearances and activities of the aliens began on February 22, 1964, just after the episodes of February 3rd, 10th, and 17th aired, uh, all of which share elements of Hill's statements. The aliens' appearance, wearing black leather jackets, uh, parallels the aliens seen in the Twilight episode, uh, black leather jackets on January 31st, 1964, um, in, in the February 3rd episode, the Invisibles, Invisible Aliens, performed surgical experiments on humans who, like Barney Hill, were lying face down on a table. 
in The Invisibles, a crab-like alien monster with a long tube-like tail is placed on a supine human's back, and the tail enters the human's back to inject an invisible parasite. Hill's anal probe is a reasonably nightmarish kind of inference from the alien tube of the show's uh, original broadcast. You know, especially because the framing of the scene, the dude had clenched teeth, hands gripping the edge of the table. It, it suggests some kind of sexual violation. So, yeah, old Barney Butthole sees some butt rape on the boob tube, some paranormal butt rape, and it seeps into his fucking weak brain, and he <laughs> concocts this story. Well, sorry, guys. I wish I would have found some proof. I really do. I wish I could have ended this episode with an aha moment. So that's where aliens visited us. That's when it happened. Instead... Uh, I just looked into a lot of people with very active imaginations who, who have the need for attention as a higher need than sh- sharing the truth. But at least it makes for great entertainment, right? I think it does. And just because these shitheads haven't seen anything, it doesn't mean that aliens aren't really out there. It's space, man. It's space. Think about those septillion or whatever numbers of you know planets that could have life on them. I still believe. I still believe. And uh, I also believe it's finally time on this marathon of an episode for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, I can never listen to Blink-182 again. Not that I listened to them that much before. Tom DeLong has let his need for alien life to exist blind him to the truth in front of him. There were no UFO sightings in 1897. Just balloons and people who didn't know a lot of shit about balloons. And really, really, really bad newspaper journalists. Number two, nothing happened at Roswell. It was just another balloon and a sad man who lied about being a Navy SEAL, also lying about seeing four Martians when he was five years old, one of which his dad just let him poke around a little bit, because that happens. Number three, there are no aliens at Area 51. Come on. There are just weapons we're not supposed to know about because the government rightly assumes that the general public is not to be trusted with sensitive military information and because we'd prefer not to hand over weapon blueprints to places like North Korea. Number four, the ancient astronaut theory makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Why didn't ancient aliens give us useful information and technology as opposed to just helping carve old rocks into pyramids and stone heads? Get out of here. And number five, I love William Shatner. Captain Kirk says that based on mathematics alone, there is life somewhere out there in the solar system, and I agree. It's just life that lunatics like Sammy Hagar, Dan Aykroyd, and Fran Drescher haven't seen yet. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, thanks for listening to this big episode, everybody. Don't expect all of them to be this big. Uh, this was just a massive subject. And I feel like the, the bonus 100 review episodes, you know, feel a little worthy of, of going a little further to me. Uh, you guys help me so much when you rate and subscribe to Time Suck uh, to, to get that episode. And speaking of bonus episodes, uh, once I get to 300 iTunes ratings, uh, I'll do another. And as of this recording, we're already a quarter of the way there. We're somewhere around 225. So, uh I'm, I'm going to give you a little carrot uh, for this next bonus episode. It's going uh, to be about Hitler's rise to power, the pre-World War II years of the Third Reich. That just seems timely right now, and that's not because of Trump. Every time a new president takes office, people start making Hitler comparisons. I, I've literally heard it my entire life. I heard it with Obama. He's, he's going to take away our guns, you know, just, just like Hitler did. Just like Hitler did. Maybe it's because I'm from northern Idaho, a hotbed of conspiracy theory. Who knows? 
But I, I just want to lay out how he rose to power, and you can decide for yourself if, if it relates to any present situations. If this is not a partisan attack, I am neither Democrat nor Republican. I feel like both parties stopped serving the common citizenry a long fucking time ago. In my opinion, it's time to change the whole machine. Let's, let's retool the entire military-industrial complex, but... Not going to get political. we got enough of that shit in the world right now. Uh, if, you, if you want to know what the next episode of Time Suck will be before it comes out on Mondays, uh, please follow me on either Twitter, at D underscore Cummins, on Facebook, at Dan Cummins Comedy, or on Instagram, at Dan Cummins Comedy. I also post tour dates there, uh, and I also post them at, at, at uh, dancummins.tv website. I'll be at Hyenas Comedy Club in Plano, Texas, February 23rd through 25th, the Tacoma Comedy Club in Tacoma, Washington, March 2 through 4, Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh, North Carolina, March 9 through 11. Lots more places coming up after that. So keep rating the show. Keep subscribing. Keep telling your friends. I'm so thankful, and have a great weekend, time suckers. Got another, another episode right around the corner. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 